Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah. From the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following brilliant program is produced by Magic Matt Allen with a vengeance. I am the legendary Pearl Bear. The man with the microphone that's attacking him is Mark C.G. Boyer. Hello. Co-host, fact-checker. December 9th, 2001, Kathleen Peterson was found dead at the bottom of a staircase. Her scalp was lacerated, deep incisions. Her blood was strewn from outside to inside the house. Now police arrested Kathleen's husband, Michael Peterson, charged him with the murder. He said he didn't do it. It was a real mess, not just because of the blood. You might have seen the documentary. You might have watched the adaptation on HBO. We're gonna get to the bottom of this today. A neighbor Larry Pollard came up with an alternative. He claimed an owl had attacked Kathleen outside her house. He said it sliced her scalp with his fierce talons. Well, when the media heard the story, they made fun of Larry, right? They mocked him. Well, it's 20 years later, our guest author, Teddy Smith, is also a professor of religious studies, explores Pollard's theory. Maybe law enforcement ignored or even hid evidence to convict Michael Peterson. Was an owl, in fact, the real killer? Let's find out. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Although well, that's what you Brian think now. <laughs> Give yourself about 45 minutes. You might change your mind. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm fascinated by your career. If it doesn't conform to science and reason, it's not religion, but superstition. Most of my work, though, has dealt with um, the philosophy of religion and natural and science and how those two things fit together. Um, So it was a very, uh, let's say, unrelated tangent that I got down when I started on this true crime case. Uh, I was wondering what attracted to this case. Well, you know, it was a long time ago. I saw the staircase, um, you know, death in the staircase, back in, you know, 2004 when the thing came out. Um, I thought it was, you know, very interesting. Uh, at the time, I think I was sort of ambivalent. I guess I sort of thought, well, looks realistically like the husband did it. Looks like Michael Peterson bludgeoned his wife to death. Um, the idea that she might have fallen downstairs and died in a terrible accident just seemed not very convincing, I thought. Yeah. But then it was a couple of years later that I heard about this owl theory of uh, Larry Pollard, a neighbor of Mm -hmm. the Petersons, and according to him, you know, he said perhaps what had happened to this woman was that, you know, she had been attacked outside late at night by an owl, and that's what caused the stress to her scalp. She ran inside and collapsed at the bottom of the staircase. And I thought, well, that's a very interesting theory, no matter what you think about anything else, right? Whether you think it's true or not, that's pretty damn... Folks, if you see the pictures of her skull, her scalp, uh, she was really kind of ripped to shreds there. Yeah, well, it's not just that that she's ripped to shreds on the scalp. It's really the shape of these wounds. They're they're specifically trident-shaped. There are two of them side by side. I mean, it almost looks like if you've got a sort of cookie cutter of a a, a bird of prey's foot and stamped it twice into the skull of this woman, Mm -hmm. um, well, into the scalp, you know. 
So it's really quite impressive, and that was the first thing that caused Larry Pollard, this neighbour, and he was an attorney as well, actually, a uh, special prosecutor for the North Carolina Special Attorney's Office. Um, and that was the first thing that caused him to believe that uh, a bird of prey might have been involved. So anyway, a few years went by, um, COVID struck, and all of a sudden I had this free time on my hands that I didn't have before. And uh, I turned my attention again to this case, and I realised, hang on, if it were a bird of prey, there must be a lot more to it than that. There usually and is. Then that, <laughs> yes, and then that ball started rolling. So, Did you uh, have any problems getting cooperation from law enforcement? Uh, I, I think that would be... Uh, an understatement. It was extremely difficult to get any cooperation from law enforcement, but I want to be actually very, very clear about this. It was extremely difficult to get cooperation from anybody. Uh. Almost nobody who was uh, concerned with or had anything to do with the events of that terrible day, December 9th, 2001, wanted anything to do with the book. Many people have moved out of state. They refuse to talk about it to anyone. And so it's not just silence on the side of the police. It's from both sides of the story. And I think that's actually a very important fact about this case that people need to recognize. This particular case has received a lot of publicity. There have been multiple documentaries. There was a dramatic recreation from HBO. Um... What made you feel uh, a book about this particular case was uh, was needed? Um, well, first, first of all, I thought that there was a very interesting story going on here, not just surrounding Kathleen's death, but surrounding this individual, Larry Pollard, and the ridicule and trauma that he faced in developing this theory and presenting it to the public. So there's actually, there's a, there is a human story hiding somewhere in the book. And, and it has to do with um, this man desperately trying to account for the facts of the case and coming an incredible theory that I think hasn't really been seriously dealt with in the media so far. Now, the only place that you really do find it discussed is at the end of the Netflix re-release right. of the uh, documentary where Larry gets a brief interview. Um, I don't think it's sufficient. Moreover, I don't think that Larry's account is the whole story, and I felt that in order to present the case that I wanted to present, I actually just needed a lot of time, a bit of patience from an audience, and quite a few more pages um, to add. I had more pages to add than the already existing literature had to say about it. Interesting. When I, There's always a tendency to do either-ors, and not yes mm. ands in what happened in the situation, because all murders are you know, mm. motive, means, and opportunity. If you wanted to offer, <laughs> and that was the offer, that's a nice opportunity. If someone comes in, their head's already bleeding from being attacked by an owl, and well, well this looks convenient. What a nice coincidence. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah, you're quite right, and I... I want to stress that as well that you know in writing this book it's not as if i went ahead with it thinking well uh michael must be innocent because the bird is guilty and there's nothing more to be said because larry got the answer to begin there's always nuance in these stories mm -hmm. the point of the book is not to show that michael's a great guy and didn't deserve this or that or the other um 
it's really nothing to do with his innocence or guilt at all. It's a book about the evidence in the case and what it really indicates. And most people are actually woefully ignorant about what the evidence in this case really is. Was there, well, aside from maybe the CSI lab faking some stuff, which I guess they did, or not reporting some stuff, or faking some things, which always just really pisses me off. Uh, if you can't trust your CSI lab, who can you trust? Uh, mm. uh, uh, there's, uh, I find prosecutorial misconduct running rampant in most cases, uh, even the best of cases. And uh, I find it very disheartening. Did you uh, have any problems with that in investigating this? Uh, did I have any problems with that? What do you mean by that? Exactly? With prosecutorial misconduct, did you find any uh, episodes of, of misconduct on the part of the prosecution? Oh, dear God, where do I start? (laughs) (laughs) That's a leading question, isn't it? (laughs) How about you just pick something and go with it? (laughs) Okay, um, well, the most important piece of evidence brought to trial was a tiny little capsule labelled State's Exhibit 12. Now, it was supposed to be a piece of the murder weapon used to bludgeon Kathleen in the stairwell. It was plucked from, I think it was the 15th step up in the staircase, plucked from out of the wood. It had been stamped in hard. Now, when the forensic investigator discovered it, he noted that it was something that he could only describe as like wood slash metal. It was too hard to be wood, but not quite like metal. And in a later interview with Wired magazine, in fact, this was just a few years ago, the lead forensic investigator called it like a mini talon. So this was a curved little tip of something shaped like a mini talon that was stamped into the 15th step of the staircase with force. Now, when this piece of evidence was presented to the jury, Eric Campen, its discoverer, went up to the jury with the container, opened the container for everyone to see, and pulled it about in the wall, the cotton wall that was inside the container, held it at this angle, that angle, trying to see what had happened. It was gone. It had vanished. In the midst of the investigation, before the jury could see it, before it could be uh, investigated to discover what kind of substance it was, it just vanished. The chip of the murder, George, the lead forensic investigation, would later tell us was shaped like a mini talon. The colour, silvery in colour, is exactly, or gunmetal grey as it was described, this is exactly the colour that you'd expect of the talon of a bird of prey. It's just incredible. But it vanished. It evaporated miraculously. It evaporated in media. You see the district attorney run over to Campen and say, what's going on? And Campen whispers, it's not in there. So, uh, I mean, that was just one example that I could bring up, but I mean, I, I guess there are just dozens to, that are all, you know, I hope persuasively argued in the book. But I think there are many examples of pieces of evidence being hidden, uh, certainly many pieces of evidence being mislabeled and misdescribed. Um, I mean, the most famous episode of this was the fact that the blowpoke, which Michael was alleged to have beaten Kathleen with, uh, had in fact been found halfway through the trial, photographed and put back in place by the forensic team. So it was never mysteriously nothing at all. I mean, there were just so many examples of this kind of misconduct. It's really quite shocking. Well, it's almost like the uh, uh, 
making of a murder case where we searched that room a hundred times and we didn't find any evidence. And, oh, gee, we just now found her keys sitting right there in the middle of the room. <laughs> you know, yeah. things like yeah. that. <laughs> that just drives me crazy. <laughs> and no one bats an eye at that stuff. Well, nobody does bat an eye, and it's quite reasonable in a way because we tend to just accept the information that we're given, right? And especially when it comes to an explanation or a description of something. If you're told that something's a piece of woody vegetation, you tend to disbelieve it's a piece of woody vegetation, but you don't think twice about it, right? But sometimes you need to see the photos, you need to actually investigate the item in more detail to judge whether the description given is adequate to the piece. You know, I've, every prosecutor that I've had on this show, I've asked all of them, have you ever been pressured to prosecute someone that you believed in your heart of hearts was innocent? And they all said yes. Mm. Now that, that just, I mean, that shakes me to the core. Because <laughs> mm. prosecutors, their job is not to prosecute in terms of go get him, Charlie, but rather to administer justice in the case. If the person didn't do it, you don't prosecute them. You know, you got to believe mm. it. How can you manufacture a case? But that's one of the strangest things about this case is, you know, when people try to explain, well, what if Michael was railroaded, why was he railroaded? Yeah. And the explanation given is normally something to do with, oh, he wrote these articles for the newspaper that would make fun of the you know, judicial officials or the DA or the police, and so they were grumpy with him, and they got their chance to finally put him away. I mean, it just really doesn't stick for me. I don't. Uh -oh. I simply don't know why they railroaded him, and I don't think the writing a few cheeky articles to the newspaper was what did it. No, no, it's usually something. Well, of course, as a, one of the problems with the law enforcement, uh, and. It, can happen anywhere. And as they get myopic, they, they get an idea of who they think is the perp, and they focus entirely on that and don't take anything else into consideration. And, uh, you know, get single-minded on it, which is very difficult not to do. But it's a, a common problem. They decide, you know, okay, we decided he did it, whether he did or not. I'll tell you one, uh, you might be able to use this in your class one day. I was talking to a, a detective in Tacoma, and I said, according to court testimony, you had this fellow under surveillance from this date to that date. It also said in the court testimony that he moved the body from this date to another location. Now, if you were telling the truth, your men watched him move the body. Why is there no mention of you watching him moving the body if you had him under constant surveillance? And the guy just looked down at his shoes because he couldn't answer it. He just said, well, we closed the case. I said, yeah, you closed the case. The real murder is out there somewhere. Mm. So uh, there, are, there are some items um, that were brought to light <clears throat> that are contradictory to an attack by an owl and falling down and hitting your head. Um... If if this if she was being attacked by an owl, and her husband was outside, as he said he was, wouldn't he have heard the commotion, the 
screaming, the you know, the kerfuffle is going on. <laughs> kerfuffle. <laughs> That's a good word. Kerfuffle. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that was, you know, the argument presented as well against the fall theory, that, you know, if, if she had fallen, <laughs> she might have been able to... And the explanation given was that, you know, he was too far out by the pool to hear. Um, and I think this is, you know, a good um, argument. But we have to remember that Michael actually gave two alibis at two different times, which again strains the idea that we can simply regard him as totally innocent or not knowing what was going on. So when help first arrived on the scene, when the paramedics first arrived, he ran to them and said, oh my God, you know, come quick. And they went over to Kathleen, they began to work on it. Uh, they asked him, when did the accident happen? And he said, I don't know. I was just going outside to turn off the lights. I came back in and found her. Now, that was the first thing he was said to say to the paramedic. In all subsequent testimony about the case, he said, no, no, I was outside wearing T-shirts and a short for two or three hours, sleeping in, on a winter's night in Durham next to my pool, which, again, isn't a very convincing story either. So I don't think we can really trust Michael's testimony about where he was that night generally. My own guess, and, um, you know, this is just the best I've been able to come up with to explain the details of the case, is that he was probably simply passed out drunk in bed. Yeah. And it wasn't going to make for a good alibi to say to uh, the jury, well, I can't remember what the fuck happened on the night, Mike. Well, I was, <laughs> I was lost. <laughs> Drank myself yeah, into a stupor as usual. <laughs> they also, her, hyo, her hyo, hyoid bone was crushed. That's uh, under. That's inside the neck, which would mm. indicate some sort of uh, strangulation. Absolutely it would, but there are two very interesting things to note about that injury. Um, the first thing to note is that there isn't actually any associated trauma of neck, i.e. there's no bruising, there's no finger nut marks, there's no other indication of strangulation apart from the broken bone. Now another thing to note, and I know this is when people think, oh well now he's totally lost the but it's actually within the repertoire of a large bird of prey to, if grasping the throat, break the stone. Now, it might sound ridiculous to the point of impossibility that an owl would be, say, choking the form to death, but it would only take, say, one moment lunge with the owl's talons to inflict this kind of injury. And in fact, on Kathleen's neck, as noted by the medical examiner, there is, in fact, a puncture wound. Uh. But there's no associated trauma of the kind that you might think of, like finger marks, bruising, no um, uh, pinpoint. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Well, what would piss the owl off so much? Oh, uh, territorialism. Territorialism? Yes, they're very territorial. Anything perceived as an intrusion on their territory, they attack. Oh. See, I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that the book has a large chapter about owl attacks in North America over the 20th century, 20th and 21st century. So I've got this great history going on of all of the different attacks that have happened, uh, some near fatal, one in fact fatal, um, that have happened over the last uh, 100 years or so. And uh, the fascinating thing is that actually the date of Kathleen's death is in line as well with the usual uh, rise in territoriality in owls during the breeding season. 
Hmm. So that's when you typically see uh, more attacks on humans coming out, just around the start of winter. There were there were two other items. Uh, one was a, a shoe print on her uh, yoga pants, were they? Like someone kicked her in yeah, the ass. Sweatpants, Sweat whatever pants, they yeah. were. You know, where did the shoe print look like it matched Michael's? It does match Michael's. It very obviously is Michael's, I think. Um, and that was one of the other odd things, is that Michael removed his shoes and left them in the hallway when he found the body, uh, claiming that he found the floor was too slippery, so he needed to take his shoes off, which, again, doesn't make very much sense. But the strange thing about the shoe print on Kathleen is that, you know, this indicates that he was in contact with the body. Sure, we know he was in contact with the body. When the paramedics arrived, they found him holding her body. Um, the, the, the shoe print itself is actually facing towards her toe. It's not facing her as if he was thrashing her, pinning her down with one foot and thrashing her head. It's well, facing it's the other direction. Um, and, that's, and, and in fact, it's, it's restricted in movement. It's not a scuff or a smear. It's not from a kick or a stomp or anything like that. Um, so it's actually quite consistent with Michael just coming to the body, stumbling over it, and <coughs> landing a foot on the edge of her ankle as he finds the body. I'm, I don't really find it all that suspicious, but people seem to be inclined to think so. Yeah. Well, we'll take anything and amplify it. So there, were, there was another item about um, a particular form of uh, decay of the neural... Well, your microphone's getting good and weird ...in the brain. Um, and that indicates that it was many hours prior to the 911 call. Yeah, that he waited a long time to call. Well, if you, well, if you take the forensics at face value... I think, so you have to be quite specific about what the problem is there. And, and the reason that that's usually held up as a problem is that he claimed that Kathleen was still breathing when he found her. So the fact that there are red neurons there which indicate the decay of the brain over time, you know, that takes many hours, and the idea is that shouldn't have been setting in if she was still breathing. Now, there are two ways to explain this. One is to simply say, well, Michael was wrong when he phoned up. He thought she was breathing, but, you know, this was just a rattle from the lungs or something. She wasn't, in fact, breathing anymore. Um, in fact, he phoned up shortly after to say she wasn't breathing anymore, so they needed to hurry up. Um, but the other uh, reason that you might find red neurons in a brain that had been, uh, or that, that you might find red neurons in the brain is that it had been losing blood over a prolonged period of time. So in fact, Kathleen may have still been breathing, but may have been exsanguinating over a very long period, which is why the way the scene appears, I think most likely the case. Interesting. Hmm. So there isn't really any contradiction between Kathleen still being breathing at the time of the 111 call, 911 call, sorry, I'm from New Zealand, we have 111. Um, yeah, no contradiction between the finding the body still breathing and uh, the red neurons, so long as we assume there's been a very slow exsanguination over the course of several hours beforehand. Interesting. Um, who is Elizabeth Ratliff? Ratliff. Ratliff. Yes. 
this is when this is where things get really juicy. Right? This is where everyone's ears prick up. If they were getting bored halfway through the original Staircase documentary, they go, oh, now things are getting exciting. Back in Germany, 1985, Kat, uh, uh, Michael Peterson and his first wife, Patricia Peterson, worked in Germany in Frankfurt as teachers. And while they were there, their best friend, a woman called Elizabeth Ratliff, found at the bottom of the stairs, drenched in blood. Now, for most people, that, 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 that's the nail in the coffin for Michael, for most people, right? Nobody gets a one-two punch like that just by fate alone. So, Did he have an owl in his suitcase when he went there? I'm sorry? I think Germany oh. has an owl. <laughs> Did he have an owl in his suitcase when he went to Germany? Yes, very droll. No, um, I don't think he did. Um, and, you know, the circumstances of Elizabeth's death were even more suspicious than Kathleen's. When uh, her body was found, it seemed as though the phone had been cut in her house. Um, she hadn't taken off her snow boots at the front door and yet had apparently been wandering around the house. So there were all sorts of very suspicious things about Elizabeth's death. And this was brought forward at Michael's trial as evidence uh, for not just the claim that he was Kathleen's killer, but in fact that he was a multiple murderer or a serial killer. Part of a common scheme or plan. That's how they try to add that stuff on, which is usually Mm. a mistake. I mean, it it strikes me as obviously prejudicial to the jury to present this evidence. I mean, if you'd been found guilty of one murder before, then of course, you know, um, bring that evidence forward in the future but if, if you're simply connecting a, a, a death nearly 20 years beforehand right. with similar circumstances to a current case where the person is being accused of having murdered the person in the way that that person could have been murdered I mean it's just shockingly prejudicial yes. in the original autopsy Elizabeth Ratliff was found to have had uh, a, a stroke and fallen down the stairs um, that was disputed at Michael's trial and now labelled um, as a homicide again. But I, I, I just think in, in terms of uh, pre- prejudice for the jury, it's just a shocking decision to conclude in the case. Huh. It's the, I thought when, I, when they brought that up, they went, uh-oh, here we go. They're going to go for that common scheme or plan. Look what he did before 20 years ago, although he was never convicted of anything. They're going, gee, they're mm. going to screw up their own case here. Either that or mm. prejudice the jury so much they'll go along with anything. It really upsets me when they do that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, also upset um, uh, Michael, too. <laughs> well, of course, and then there was the uh, so-called evidence brought forward about his you know, gay uh, sex life and yeah. how this was... Relevant, but um, you know they brought in poor Brad Wolgamot, this gay escort, who had were absolutely furious with the prosecution because they had promised him that they would not be bringing him forward, that he would be left alone. And then at the last minute, they changed their mind and brought him in. Mm. And he was, although you can't tell as he sits on the sand, on the stand, he told me secretly he was absolutely seething with them, having to be there facing the public, oh, and yeah. you know, telling his story to the world, you know. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy for him there, and um, uh, but I mean, I guess that's another piece of the puzzle that was brought forward to uh, 
indicate that Michael might be guilty, right? That he was having or, or planning to have affairs, seemingly homosexual affairs outside the marriage of Kathleen, and affairs that Kathleen wouldn't have been happy about. So there's, there's a lot to the story, there's a lot of evidence to get through, and a lot, a, a lot of questions about motives and opportunities that need to be explored. It's not as simple as, well, there's a lot of evidence that looks like an owl, therefore, yeah. right, there's a lot to sift through, not just with yeah, regards to... It's not to an either-or, it's a yes-and or a yes-but or whatever. We may never know. See, you spent a lot of time... A lot of time going over the uh, blood spatter evidence and how it was misinterpreted. Did, uh, any, is there any salient points you can tell our audience uh, about blood spatter? Are you saying that I say in the book that I, I didn't quite hear your question? Sorry, could you yeah, try? Yeah, oh. speak up a little louder there, Mark. Um, you you spend a lot of time going over the blood spatter evidence and its potential misinterpretation. Can you describe some yeah. of the major points that you uh, refer to? Well, okay. Let's start with something very general. In the uh, space in the stairwell where Kathleen's body was found, very small space and close space, 40 inches across or so. Um, 10,000 blood splatter marks were found. 10,000 individual spots of blood. That's inconsistent with a beating. <laughs> it's inconsistent with a fall. It's inconsistent with almost any sort of accident you can think of. It's a tremendous amount of blood spraying all about the place at all kinds of angles, many of them horizontal. So we're talking about repeated horizontal blood transfer sprays onto the walls of the stairwell. Now that doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that you might get from swinging a weapon at somebody's head unless you were taking sideways swipes in the stairwell, which you wouldn't be able to do because it's not big related to the beating of the bird swing. Repeated beating. Um, oh, second you. Better get rid of Buck's phone was acting up there. Go ahead. <laughs> Go yeah. ahead. Anyway, so it was the beating of the wings, you say? So this is where my theory departs from Larry's. Larry believes that Kathleen was attacked inside when I had fainted in the stairwell. I don't think this can be the whole story. For example, I've already told part of the talent. So I think we've already got evidence that uh, an owl or uh, some bird of prey was in the staircase of Kathleen. I'll give another example of um, some splatter evidence that was in the stairwell that I think was misinterpreted. On the foot of the stairwell, right underneath the head lay, there are great white deposits, splats. What was in the stairwell that would cause big white, it looks like white paint, splattered over the top of um, okay. The blood. Which one is going to be my spot? Or hmm. um, now, at trial, the prosecution uh, refused to really comment on this at all. And the defence argued that the white splats must have been evidence that the prosecution carried out a secret luminal test. But there's an obvious 
explanation that presents itself if you already have the bird theory in hand. Yes, it is. These are bird dropping. And if you actually look at a photograph of the step, it's uncanny. I mean, you can't look at it and not realise what it is. Um, I have to I go. showed one ornithologist uh, these uh, presumed droppings, um, and she replied uh, that that was a very typical of a nervous bird. Huh. I'd be nervous too if I just attacked some lady with my talons. Mm. They're very territorial at that time of year. Yeah. Um, I mean, people underestimate not only how aggressive elves can be, but also um, how much damage they can do. Um, something like a great horned owl has a wingspan of about five feet uh, at adulthood. And this is a very large animal. If it connects to your scalp, you're in a lot of trouble. Oh, no kidding. Oh, it's, it's, no matter how you look at it, it's, it's fascinating, it's disturbing, and it keeps raising more and more questions. Now, what? Uh, meanwhile, Michael, how long is he in prison for? Or did they let him out well, because Michael of the... They let him out because of the uh, distorted evidence. That's right. So Michael went to jail for eight years um, and was finally released when it was realized that Dwayne Deaver, the blood spatter technician who gave a huge amount of evidence, I don't know how many days of evidence he presented to the trial, it was found that Dwayne Deaver's evidence was most likely corrupt and he had in many former cases uh, presented false evidence to juries in order to gain oh. conviction. God, that's horrible. So Michael's, yeah, Michael's case was uh, vacated and he was released in 2011, I believe it was. Well, you know, I don't even remember who was it who wrote the book. It was maybe maybe John Ferrick, I don't know. CSI scandal in the heartland, where all these people, the CSI lab was faking evidence, putting people in prison that were innocent. I mean, what's the point of having a CSI lab if you're going to fake evidence? I mean, it's just insane. And, you know, mm. It just boggles my mind how people can... Well, we'll solve this case. We'll just make this person guilty whether they are or not. And it's amazing how simple it is to do. I mean, if you label something that's very important as something very uninteresting, for instance, if you label, I don't know... Uh, a part of the murder weapon is this woody vegetation, for example. Well, even the defense won't bother looking at it, you know? Yeah. Why, there's nothing there to look at. Don't look at it. Hmm. Yeah, nothing here to see, folks. Move along. Exactly. And, uh, well, there was a, a case, I don't know if you're familiar with this one. This goes back several years. There was a uh, black gentleman, he was some sort of a state senator or something, that was in Philadelphia, and he got lost. And so we pulled off an exit, and he saw a cop car, so we pulled over to the cop car to ask for directions. Instead, they grabbed this guy, threw him across the hood of the car, plant drugs on him, <laughs> and then arrest him for possession. Well, he raises hell. He was quite a powerful man, I guess, in the state government. And turns out there have been five police officers in Philadelphia who have been advancing their careers simply by planting evidence on people who were completely innocent, and that's how they were advancing their careers. And two of the guys felt guilty after all this time, and they came forward and confessed. They had to let over a thousand people out of prison that these people had planted evidence on over the course of the last several years. I mean, that just shakes your faith in just about everything. 
It really does. Um, and you know, some judiciaries in some areas are going to have cultures that are a lot more corrupt than others. Um, it's something that gets entrenched in particular districts, I think, and I think that Durham was especially like this at the beginning of the 21st century. Yeah, well, you know, Frank Gerardo and I did a book with uh, Ken Urell, the second most corrupt cop in the NY. Whoops, my microphone, I think, just went out. <laughs> oh. I don't, can you hear me? Actually, you, Professor, you, can you, you hear me? You, I, well, no. Yeah. Either my microphone went out or my headphones went out, one or two. I, I also, just on this point, there was a great quote I by Diane Fanning, who wrote um, a, a book on this Michael Peterson case of her own, which is a brilliant book, I believe, that won the Edgar Award. Yeah. Um, her quote is, despite public opinion to the contrary, the legal system is no longer designed to find the truth. It is constructed to decide a winner. Although life and death lay on the line, many players in the courtroom see it all as a game where cleverness and ruse win the day. A place where a desperate desire to deceive means truth is to be avoided at all costs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what's so damn scary. Uh, although I was in a situation, personal story here, where I went to court, uh, I had a fellow go run a red light and hit me head on in a traffic accident. And the cop came over to help me. He says, I got two purposes in the back of my car. I can't stay and help you, but I'm sending another car. So the second cop shows up and gives me the ticket, which didn't make any sense because I was the one that got hit. And so I called up the, the officer who wanted to get the name of the first officer, and he starts swearing at me. I don't know whether I slept with his sister or what the deal was, but he was just out to get me. And uh, we went to, to court, and I got up in the courtroom, and I said, well, Your Honor, this is my story from my perspective of the whole thing. And he told his story, and the judge said, someone in this courtroom is a liar, and I know who it is, Mr. Bear, I apologize to you for you wasting your time coming to court today. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And he was mad at that yeah. cop. He could tell that cop was lying through his teeth. Wow. Well, there's a good judge among them. Yeah. But usually it's the other way around. They can just, you know. I say the minute you find an officer friendly lying through his teeth on a traffic stop, can him now because he'll be lying with fabricated uh, evidence, you know, in a murder case down the road. Mm. Because, you know, once it starts, you know, where does it end? And, uh,. We've seen that. Uh, so do you have another true crime book you want to write, or is this your, your one foray to stop talking about uh, uh, the uh, harmony of science and religion and the crux of, <laughs> of animism and uh, whatever? Yeah, look, I'm really, I'm not entirely sure. I have to say that this case only snowballed into me writing a book because the evidence became so peculiar, I felt that something needed to be done about it. And everybody needed to know. <laughs> uh, but as it, as it stands, I'm not sure that any other case could be quite as unusual as this one. Um, although I'll keep searching. Oh, I got one for you. <laughs> oh, do email. Uh, yeah, the, the one that I'm working on right now with Frank C. Gerardo Jr., we've been working on it for a few years. You got a, a dead body on the bed in West Hollywood. Looks like he's taking a nap. The... Uh, the only other people in his apartment in the last 24 hours 
were two homeless teenagers and a low-level Russian gangster who was with the two homeless teenagers. What were they doing together? What were they doing in that apartment? It's not so much as who killed him or even who didn't kill him, but what the hell is this all about? Because the guy's very dead. But where's the motive? Where's the means? Where's the opportunity? What's this all about, Alfie? And it took us to Brighton Beach. It took us to the Ukraine. It took us to Bermuda. took us to Robert Vesco. It, uh, I mean, it was absolutely the most bizarre case I think I've ever investigated. And how this guy wound up dead for any conceivable reason, from anything to do with 40 cases of Viagra to billions of dollars in uh, California ex- uh, gasoline excise tax fraud. It's, you know, it's one of these going, what the hell is going on here? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's pretty strange, and uh, we've been working on that one for a few years, and uh, uh, sometimes it takes that long. You know, people who don't want to tell you something in 2004, well, maybe 2022 will tell you. You know, they'll come yeah. forward and say, well, we, we, we couldn't present this evidence because we were told not to. We hid this. You know, the government said it. was like with Jeffrey Epstein. Every time someone went yeah. out, Jeffrey Epstein's... The intelligence community in the United States would say, stand down, he's an asset. Because he had information on other governments and other stuff that the CIA wanted, the FBI wanted. And so, until it got to the point where there was too much publicity, they'd always say, stand down, he's an asset, don't mess with him. Yeah, right. No, it's incredible. And, you know, the truth is meant to win out at the end of the day, but it takes one hell of a long time. Yeah, as Burl Bear says, it all comes out in the wash. It's just a spin cycle that makes you crazy. Get mm. <laughs> <Did> up, <I> bump. <laughs> so, uh, what was it you found yourself temporarily unemployed as a uh, brilliant professor of religious studies? Look, COVID has wrought havoc with oh, everyone's God, careers, yes. as far as I know, and it's just been one of those things, I'm afraid. Uh, but luckily, I've had this to work on to keep me occupied and. Uh, well, it certainly keep my brain occupied anyway. Now, in your study, I'm not going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here because you're, what you usually do is fascinating to me. Now, if you look at the early days, for example, of Islamic civilization when they had that, was it the, uh, they brought in everybody, Jews, Christians, Muslims, all scientific, you know, looking for answers to everything, great scientific achievements. And in some crackpot, his name I can't remember, but you probably do, decides to tell people, arithmetic is of the devil. Numbers are evil. Don't do math. <laughs> right? Everything comes to a screeching halt. Why do people fall for that crap? I mean, they were just on the road to so many great discoveries, so many great scientists, and then someone comes up with this, numbers are bad. Don't do math. <laughs> and people, uh, I think, you know, the reason people can fall for it is often because we have this idea of the sacred that we get very hit up about, right? Yeah. And if you say that certain ideas are sacred or taboo and shouldn't be touched, you're going to find your society or your civilization in a much darker place than it was before. You know, what we really want are all the ideas and all the um, theories discussed in the light of reason and discussion and fairness. And in a way, this would be quite a good note to end on because when it comes to the L theory... (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, bring it back around, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's so often ridiculed just because the prior probability is so low, just because it seems so extraordinary. 
Yeah. And people, therefore, get the sort of taboo about it or that to talk about it, you might be a crackpot or Larry must be insane or da-da-da. Yeah. But really, we need all of these theories out on the table because however you spin the story, however you try and explain it, something really, really strange happened that night. Yeah. And uh, people with all different versions, not necessarily one version is superior to the other, so it happens to be a blend of ingredients dissimilar to a doctor's mm. prescription. <laughs> Sometimes things just work Absolutely. out well. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, you, and you never know what reasons people have for lying over particular things or um, covering their own skin, you know. Yeah. Perhaps they have a parking ticket they don't want you to find, or perhaps it's something much more sinister, but you never know. Uh, it's just too, too, too strange. I was never uh, into true crime until I started writing it. Uh, fortunately, my, uh, my first two true crime books did very, very well, and I got signed to multi-book contracts, so I kind of got stuck writing it. Uh, I don't mind, because some of these cases are just <laughs> fascinating, but that wasn't how I started. <laughs> but you go where it goes, you know, where your career takes you. But uh, Yeah, I've been very impressed with your career, Bill, to be honest. Well, well if, if you met me, you wouldn't be so <laughs> we were joking about that on Facebook the other night. So people who consider me a social irritant, <laughs> well, they get a kick out of it. One of the two. But uh, we uh, have a lot of fun. It's a, a wide variety of, of interests. Uh, I actually wrote a private eye novel where I'm the hero because no one else is going to write a private eye novel where I'm the hero. So I figured I'd better do it while I had the chance. And as I mentioned, yeah, all right, bro, I'll take it back. <laughs> <laughs> my mother said she thought I'd be a rabbi, but my uncle thought I'd be a mullah. So <laughs> we just never got, kind of got that worked out. I always found it fascinating that some religions are crowdsourced. That always blows my mind. Like the, uh, what that? Well, you know, like in Christianity, where they, they'd vote on what they wanted to believe, and the, the, right, right, right. the monotheists were cool, and then you had a new vote, and the polytheists took over, and all of a sudden the monotheists were, monophysites rather, the monophysites were suddenly heretics for the day before they hadn't been. That just blows my mind. <laughs> Let's take a vote on what we want to believe this year. Well, that's what we tend to do in other domains, isn't it? I mean, more or less. It just fascinates me, just fascinating. Uh, but that's show business, and show business is my life. Mm. I mean, you always got to learn something. You know, look at Grandma Moses. She didn't start painting until she was uh, 180 years old or something. You know, you didn't write your... How old are you when you started your first two crime book? Me? How old was I? Yeah, when you wrote the, your first two crime book. The one about the owl. Well, this is my this is my first true crime book, so I'm I, I think I'm 38. You think you're 38? You could be wrong, but we'll we'll, I we'll, think we'll, I, we'll, I we'll go with that. You're 38. And when I did you I'm when did you write? Uh, uh, After writing this book, I feel about 78. So there's a big difference there. Yeah. Uh, so, but the, the other ones you wrote on the uh, religion and science and uh, animism and. Uh, uh, yeah, these have all been in my 30s. I suppose these yeah. have all been since about. 30, 38, so. Well, that's good. See, that's, everyone in my family writes. My nephews I'm so proud of, Todd and Lee, they were both on the New York Times bestsellers list the same week. Oh, my Lord. Isn't that something, my two nephews? 
I was on, I was on there once in 2000. I made it. <laughs> there's three people in the same family been on the New York Times bestsellers list. I don't know if there's any. It's kind of like the Barry Moores, you know. <laughs> have, you, have you been plugging their work nonstop on this? Oh, they, they do a fine job all by themselves. Uh, yeah, Lee, Lee Goldberg and Todd Goldberg, my nephews. And, Excellent. Uh, yeah, they've, they've done quite, quite well. Todd's got... Uh, Gangsters Never Die, coming out on September 2023. Can make sure you get your copy. Great, great uh, concept for his uh, series of fiction is this gangster uh, hides out as a rabbi in Las Vegas. <laughs> oh! And, uh, and, of course, what happens is being as he has to be a good rabbi, he's reading the Talmud, he's reading the Torah, the mission of this and that and the other thing, and the Zohar, and, of course, it begins to have an influence on his soul. You can't study all that stuff without it having an influence on you. Excellent. Oh, my. I'm already Googling it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Google Todd Goldberg. Gangster, gangster Land, Gangster Nation, and coming soon, yeah. Gangsters Never Die. You'll get a kick out of it. In fact, I had Todd on the show and Rabbi Borovitz from Temple Bet Shuva here, who he used to be a criminal. Who became a rabbi. And so we said, okay, what's real life? I mean, you really were a criminal who became a rabbi. And Todd writes the book about a criminal who pretends to be a rabbi, you know, <laughs> kind of comparing notes on the fiction and the reality. And uh, it was kind of, that was a lot of fun. You can find that in the archives of our, our show on uh, iTunes or, you know, any place where we are. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm already hooked. It sounds right up my alley. Yeah, it is. That's your kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Really enjoyed it. Well, look, and, I want to thank you so much. For, uh, uh, the book for is called Death by Talons. Death by Talons from Wild Blue Press, my favorite publisher, because they're my current publisher as well. <laughs> and they'll be They're a great team. Oh, they're wonderful. You know, we were talking with um, uh, Ron Francell and uh, Kevin Sullivan, uh, uh, the true crime writers. We just love Wild Blue Press because they will go along with just about anything. If you really want to do a book, and even if people are saying, oh, I don't know about that one, if it's, if it's your heart of hearts as an author, you think there's something there, and you have a style you want to tell it in, they are 100% supportive. And, well, that's a miracle in itself right there. <laughs> So no, I, I totally agree. It's been a total delight to work with. Yeah, very delightful to work with. And uh, in fact, I'm working with it right now. Just sent off the latest edited manuscript of Stealing Manhattan, coming April 2023. True story of the world's greatest gentleman thieves and gem heist masterminds who got away with everything, including a billion dollar mega heist, 1992, New York City, and they got away with it. How about that? Give you something to look forward for a second career. <laughs> this professor business doesn't work out. I'll hook you up with some Jim Heist masterminds. Excellent. Well, thanks again, and uh, I hope we'll have you on the show again some other time, and we'll talk about some more stuff. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great talking to you. All right, great. Uh, Mark C.G. Boyer, my fact checker and uh, co-host, ran screaming out of the room. He got a phone call. I hope uh, no one in his family was uh, injured or ill or whatever the reason was. It's, he had an emergency and he left. But um, that's the story there. Uh, Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence, live from the Light Up Lounge. Coming up in about uh, five minutes on Outlaw Radio Live. 
www.thetitanic.com. And uh, really enjoyed having a Titty, that's his name, Titty, Professor Titty Smith on the show today with his book, Death by Talons, which is uh, coming out any minute now from Wild Blue Press. And buy it, read it, discuss it. Makes great holiday gifts, even though the holidays are over. All right. Thanks for listening. And now, back to our regular scheduled programming. Okay, cheers, You want to play something? We're done. Thank you.